Today on episode number 402 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, Rochelle O'Brien and Nicola Witten join me to talk about playful learning and virtual escape rooms. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. Joining me on today's episode of Teaching in Higher Ed are two guests, Rochelle O'Brien and Nicola Witten. Rochelle is a senior digital learning designer at Durham University. She's worked in education for over 10 years as an independent consultant in higher education and in the commercial sector. Her research interests include play, games, digital education, and inclusion. Rochelle's current work focuses on the potential of using puzzles in higher education as teaching, learning, and as assessment tools. Nicola Witten is director of the Durham Center for Academic Development and professor of education at Durham University. Her research focuses on play in adulthood, in particular games and learning in the context of higher education, and the potential of play in learning, research, and academic practice. Her most recent projects have focused on the potential of escape room design for learning. Rochelle O'Brien and Nicola Witten, welcome to Teaching in Higher Ed. Thank you. Thank you very much. Let's start by talking about play. And I'll begin, Nick, with you. Could you tell me about some aspect of your life where you see playful problem solving coming into the mix? Wow. Well, my background is very much researching all types of play and video games. So that, that's very much where my mindset is a lot of the time. So um, I'm director of uh, a department at Durham University, and I try very much to bring playful ideas into working with, with staff. So we, we try and do a lot of look at playful ways of getting staff to engage in each other. So for example, before the pandemic, one of the things that I did was get rid of staff away days because they didn't seem to work and they were quite artificial. And we replaced them with playful volunteering instead. So we'd go out and we'd do something useful in the community for a day. So we over Christmas, we spent a day um, packing up food for disadvantaged families and playing party games. And one summer we spent a day clearing up a churchyard and playing hide and seek in the bushes. And that seems to me to be a very nice and playful way of getting to know each other and doing what people do on away days but without necessarily having the formality or the artificiality of it. Oh, I love this. I think sometimes we would call these retreats, but they often are neither <laughs> retreats nor always getting the things that we want out of it. That, oh, thank you for sharing this with me. This gives me an idea for some of the work that I do at my university. I love this idea. Thank you so much. Rochelle, how about for you? What comes to mind when you think about in your life just playful problem solving in general? So I'm going to take this slightly differently. So I'm left-handed and all of my life I've done things, as my mum would say, back to front. So I eat with my cutlery in the wrong hands. I tend to go the opposite way to the way that I should go. So I've kind of had that in my mind 
Um, and as I've gotten older, I've found that I apply that to work that I do. And what that means is that if somebody uses something and there's like a specific guidance and you are supposed to use it in that way, I tend to do it the wrong way around, which for a little while wasn't a great thing. But over time, I've come to realize that you can actually find different, sometimes better routes to solve your problem by doing it differently from the way that you're told to. So I guess basically I deviate and I'm blaming that on being left-handed. That's <laughs> that's the summary. <laughs> oh, that's so delightful. It reminds me, it's just tangentially related to when I first started learning about some of the ways that people approach instructional design. This is mm-hmm. such an early learning and it probably might seem overly simplistic to some, but it's such a vivid memory for me. A lot of at that time I was teaching skills. And, and, you know, things that would have a specific order. If you want to accomplish this task, then you need to do these things or whatever. And an important element that came out of that was don't just show people what it should look like. You know, when you're done, this is what this thing should look like. But also, this is what it doesn't look like. Or like like to, to do that exact opposite thing that you're describing there as an important way of helping people be able to navigate things. And that's just something that I hadn't really attended to very much at that time in my teaching and really created a whole new avenue for me to think, because I don't know that I, that necessarily comes very naturally to me to think that way, but I like to build it in and, and just be able to kind of ask those questions of, of that. So that's really helpful. And to that end, we're going to be looking specifically in this episode about one aspect of play But before we get there, I'd like to just have you each share a little bit about when we talk about that play can be a way of actively constructing our understanding what that means to each of you and how you see that play out. And let's begin this time with Rochelle when we talk about actively constructing our understanding. What does that mean to you and some ways you see it play out? So I guess given sort of my my last answer that this may not be surprising and It's something that I think Nick can come in on a bit more, but failure is the first thing that comes to mind with that. So being open to put yourself in a position to try something and potentially fail and treat the failure as the end goal, which might sound strange. One thing that I kind of struggle with is decision making. And quite often I will make decisions by failing at things because then it takes that decision off the table. So I guess I use that kind of thing to actively construct the understanding of the thing that I want, which again, it might seem really upside down, but hopefully that answers it. No. And in fact, when this episode airs, a very recent episode will have been from Audrey Waters talking about both her research and her book called Teaching Machines. So to remind people who may not have listened to that episode, the early teaching machines were designed to fear failure and you want to make sure that people get all these answers, you know, right as we go along the way. And then I have been introduced to cognitive psychologists who would really stress the opposite of that. In fact, I remember so frequently Robert Bjork, who was on the podcast many, many moons ago, who has this wonderful quote that says, forgetting is the friend of learning. 
And I've, that's always stuck with me, although ironically, his name didn't always stick with me. And I was standing in front of a few hundred people and got it wrong. And <laughs> speaking, I mean, it was like a lived out experience of I've never forgotten his name since then. Forgetting really is the friend of learning such that when we can not take ourselves so seriously, I tried at the time to be like, it doesn't, you know, people don't expect you to remember every single name. Sure. That's, that's way too much pressure to put on yourself when I was doing it in response to someone's question. It wasn't like I hadn't failed at preparing for the presentation that day or what have you. Or even if I had, I mean, to have the highest <laughs> of expectation for myself that somehow at every minute of the day, I'm supposed to be able to, you know, have perfect recall, which would be too high of an expectation to have. So yeah, forgetting is the friend of learning and the ways in which the struggle and the ways in which the failure really can contribute to that. So Nick, for you, what comes to mind when you think about some of the ways in which we actively construct our understanding as learners and some of the ways that helps us? So so for me, it comes down to this idea called the magic circle. I don't know if that's something that you've come across before. It comes from... Um, game studies and has sort of been picked up by people that are looking at play and learning and the idea of the magic circle is that when you start to play with somebody or other people you have this contract and now that can be if, in, if you're using an actual game so like chess then you agree to abide by the rules of the game and, and it's a formal structure but it's also when you're for example you are bantering with friends in a pub or you are you see children playing games, it's an agreement by everyone who is in the magic circle to abide by the rules of that other space. And actually what I'm really interested in is how you can build those for learning, because actually that's really powerful. And as, as Rochelle said, the ability to fail in a space that where the that what happens kind of what happens in the circle stays in the circle. But that it doesn't matter because if you look at video games, for example, video games are designed to fail, but they would be really boring if they didn't. So actually, as Rochelle said, the point of the game is to fail to play. And I'm really interested also in this concept um, by a chap called Bernard Suits, who, came, who talks about, this is where my brain goes. I go, what was this? Oh, loose, loosery attitude. And that's the kind of the spirit of play. It's a willingness of people to play and to voluntarily give themselves into the magic circle and into that spirit of play. And for me, that's the really important thing that people are prepared to move in to accept whatever arbitrary rules of the game and that they don't mind if they fail. And actually, if they fail, they celebrate that and they try again. And I mean, it's that kind of attitude of play, regardless of what people are actually playing, that's really powerful. We're going to look now specifically at just one aspect of play that we might bring into our teaching, and that has to do we're going to be going specifically to virtual escape rooms. But I think before we get there, we got to start with just escape rooms in general. And who would like to share a little bit about what an escape room is in case no one's ever heard of it and a little bit of how it might be applied in different contexts? Okay, so an escape room, um, it tends to be an activity that is planned and it has various challenges within it. So I'm going to try and set the scene for you because I think that's probably the easiest way to describe it. So. Imagine you and a group of friends get sent into a room and get locked in there. So once you're in this room, the only challenge you have is to get out. You don't necessarily know how to get out, but you know that there's going to be clues around the room. You know that you've got a time limit and you know that your goal is to get out. So escape rooms tend to consist of a series of different tasks or challenges or puzzles 
And you will have to solve them to reveal other clues that will essentially lead you to escaping. And that that is the goal. And the intention is that it's time limited usually, which adds pressure. It tends to be something that's done in a group. Um, It is something that you can do on your own, but it's also much more fun when you're trying to figure out who can communicate under pressure and how well they can do it. But yeah, in short, that's what an escape room is. Yeah. And have either or both of you participated in an escape room before? Many. Yeah. (laughs) Rochelle, many? Yeah. I I don't know about you, Nick. Probably upwards of 100, I think. I I remember that when they first came, there was one in London and it just came up on my Facebook feed a couple of days ago. So it was about seven years ago that myself and and some colleagues, we we all from different bits of Britain, but we're all into play academically. We met up in London to try this new thing called an escape room. And we came out of it an hour later, having got out with about 30 seconds to spare, just going, that was unlike anything we'd ever done before. And we immediately tried to book in again, and obviously we couldn't because it was like a three-month waiting list. But we all came out and we sat down and went, there's got to be potential for that for learning because it was so engaging and you had to collaborate and you had to think out of the box and you had to try things. And it was very exciting. And there was lots of emotions going on and, and it just was something very unlike any sort of game or education experience we've had before. I haven't ever participated in escape room, but I have done the opposite of one where there's a series of lock boxes that are nested inside of each other and got to speak at a conference once and experience one. And it, I, I found it I liked it because I think I get a little afraid. <laughs> the idea of being locked in <laughs> is way less appealing than trying to get inside of a um, box. But it was really fun. It also was hard to do with people that I didn't know very well because I did feel a little bit that perhaps just the imposter syndrome or, <laughs> or what have you of just like not smart enough. Because I mean, some of the it's really is challenging, but I think it's it's helpful because it does sort of break down the walls and think about it in different ways that you might contribute. It's not always going to be from what we might typically think of a cognitive abilities or what have you. It was kind of a fun, but it, it's a little bit intimidating. And so how nice when they can be fun and, and then therefore, you know, become more inclusive, which I'm sure we'll talk a little bit more. And now, Rochelle, would you tell us a little bit, we've heard about escape rooms, would you talk about virtual escape rooms and how they differ from ones that occur in a physical place? Sure. So I think the only difference is, is that you don't physically go anywhere. Um, it tends to be on a screen and it tends to involve you needing to move through a series of tasks. I don't know if if this is the right point to bring this in really, but one of the reasons that escape rooms really stood out to me is because I immediately saw the way in which they could apply to learning. So escape rooms apply very similarly to like an active learning type experience. And sort of about, I'd say maybe six months ago, having been playing with escape rooms and locking students in them virtually and physically sometimes I kind of realized that you can constructively align escape rooms pretty easily because you have an outcome which tends to be solve the puzzles and escape you have a series of activities which lead you to an assessment and then that assessment lets you escape and I think having that realization made me see that It was a lot easier to communicate with other people how this is something that can work in education and also 
have other people understand the logic behind it. I think the only complicated factor in escape rooms is the logic it takes to build them. And if you can uncomplicate that, then it's just a a fun activity to develop and also to involve students in or staff, depending on who it is that you're working with. So yeah, that's virtual escape rooms. Yeah, one of my colleagues who really has gotten into virtual escape rooms, her name is Julie Wilson, and she teaches in our nursing program. And she has built lots of them and has befriended people that also do that same work in the discipline at other universities. And what I have really appreciated that I've discovered from her is that, at least as far as I can tell from her experience, this is one of the unique games and playful activities where you could have them do it as a group, like you mentioned, Rochelle. So that's that's the goal would be that it happens most of the time in her classes in a synchronous way, as in people are joining virtually and, and doing these kinds of problem solvings together. But if she does have someone who, for whatever reason, missed that opportunity, at least in her cases, she is able to have that person progress at a later date on their own independently and not miss out a lot on the learning benefits other than the collaboration that would have occurred. And I think the other thing, at least that, that again, I'm just gleaning from her experience, I've not played these in my classes, but that at least as far as I can tell, it, it helps make that failure a little bit more palatable because it's just kind of one of those assessments that it's just you finished it. So if you if you didn't get the things right along the way, you can backtrack and get that, you know, okay, I failed at that part. I didn't get that correct. And then be able to still reach that ending successfully. And therefore you're not being graded every little thing. You lost points because you got one thing wrong or you misunderstood a question. Takes a little bit of that pressure away, which I think is really, really helpful. And uh, before we talk about making them versus playing them, I just wanted to see if you have anything to add of what we've been talking about specific to virtual escape rooms. I think nursing is a really, really great example because a lot of a lot of medical education, it requires problem-based learning, but it, it's really difficult to make authentic. And that's where simulation comes in really helpfully. And I think escape rooms can actually provide that sort of simulated experience. I've seen a couple as well from universities specifically around nursing where they've had a patient and a patient is... I don't know, having a seizure, for example, and you have to then use the escape room to decode what's happening and find out what it is that is on his OBS that you can see that may be indicating what the cause of the seizure is. And you have to decode the information in that way. And then the end result would be that you hopefully help them. And what you're teaching in that situation is how to identify problems that are around the room but you can then use a reflection or a discussion to have a conversation about well okay how does this relate to literature how do we relate this to the things that you need to know in order to get a medical registration and and it's been really interesting for me to see that perspective as well. I'm glad that you brought that up because it kind of goes to the crux of I was just assuming that she was using it as a review of vocabulary terms. I know that in a lot of the STEM fields, there's uh, just such a voracious amount of terms they have to learn and to make that a little bit more palatable might be the way. And then she very gently was sort of, yeah, that's not 
that I mean, I do that sometimes, but that's not the real, you know, the benefits that she saw from that. So that really is helpful to make that distinction between just reviewing seemingly disparate vocabulary words versus actually having it be more authentic and applied in that way. And Nick, what can you tell us before we look a little bit about um, a little bit more about virtual escape rooms, just about escape rooms in general, making them versus playing them and some of the benefits to each one of those? Yeah. So, so I think as we sort of said, I, when my, myself, my, co- my colleagues came out of this escape room, we started brainstorming what it could be used for. And I think that there's obvious skills in terms of, like I said, um, getting to know one another, collaboration, communication, teamwork, problem solving. And I think that that's the kind of obvious thing. I think the problem with particularly the UK school curriculum and to some extent the, the UK higher education curriculum is there's not a lot of space for those kind of transferable skills. So I was kind of looking out for projects to get involved with and um, ended up meeting a, a, a secondary teacher at a conference. And uh, the two of us ended up both just chatting about how what, what we could do with escape rooms because he was also very interested in them. And we ended up running a three-year project with one of the local schools at the university where I used to work. And this was sort of moving away from what can you learn by playing an escape room to what can you learn by building an escape room. So it was kind of picking up on some of those ideas. So we run a conference every summer and we wanted to run some live escape rooms in the conference. And so what we did was we worked with, we did it over three years and we built up. But in the first year, it was 12 students who were sixth formers. Now that would be 17, 18 year olds. I'm not quite sure how it translates to the US, but they, they would do, they did it over a two week period. And essentially they were put into groups, they were given a brief, they were given a bit of budget to buy stuff, and they were told that they had to run a live room for a day of the conference. So one of the things that I'm really interested in is how you assess play, because play by its very nature is voluntary, and as soon as you assess it, I think that starts to, to change the nature of play. So we were very keen not to assess this, but actually going kind of back to the authentic assessment, actually coming and running your escape room in a live conference for paying punters was sort of the best real-life authentic assessment they could run. And we had a system. So we, we spent a day with them up front. We took them to play escape rooms. We did a whole day training with them. And then we had a system where they had to do various review points. So, And this, again, was to kind of embed the whole failure-based learning, because particularly by the time that students get to 17, 18 in the UK, they're looking at their final exams, and there's no space for failure in your final exams. You either pass or you don't. Whereas this was was getting them to do something and design a game. And any game designer will tell you that the first one you design won't work. There'll be bits that don't, other people don't understand. So you've got to get feedback and design it again and design it again. So we had this iterative process where the students just had to learn. They weren't going to get it right. And then they had to test again, test again. And one of the things that one of the really interesting things for me that we found out at the end of it, and I should say that the students were amazing and the games that they produced were amazing. But the best feedback that we got from them is they loved watching their teachers play their games because it absolutely changed the power dynamic that they produced something that their stu- their teachers couldn't solve and how the teachers loved it because they were getting to play games and the students just watched their, their teachers struggle and I think in terms of confidence and in terms of just how that kind of changed their worldview it was really powerful. 
Well, if we were going to build a virtual escape room, can we talk a little bit about how we might go about doing it just from a practical standpoint? What would be some of the steps? I realize we won't get all into it, and I can certainly link to some videos that would show people step by step, but any thoughts to guide us as far as creating one? Again, I would say I don't have a great deal of experience in signing them, but I think one point, while Rochelle's thinking of her answer, is that they don't necessarily have to be high-tech. So as I say, I've played a lot of different ones since lockdown. And one of my favorites was actually one that involved two books. So um, the two copies, you have to get them as a pair. My friend who lives in Leicester and I played them together. And essentially, one of you has, you, you do it over Zoom. And one of you has something, one information in your book, one has it in another, and you're not allowed to actually show them the page. But actually, it is virtual, so you're at a distance but it doesn't necessarily be digital. And I think for me, that was one of the most powerful ones that I played. Mm-hmm. Rochelle, what comes to mind as far as guiding us on how do we create a virtual escape room? So I think one of the key starting points is to think about what you actually want to achieve. Um, and this is a really difficult one. And it, it's something that I've blogged about quite openly because creating something is really exciting. And like Nick was saying about failure and about iteration, it's really, really tempting to just make the best thing ever and then to not know where to stop. So the kind of the way that I approach it and the rule of thumb that I recommend is to have an idea that you can explain in a sentence. If it goes beyond that, then it's likely to be too complicated. And the reason I say that is just because It's so easy to add complexity here, but it's really difficult to take it away. So start simple. That's the first thing. I think another really important thing, and this is specifically with an escape room, is to have a narrative or a backstory. So you really want people to be engaged and to find that intrinsic motivation. And the way to do that is to have them needing to achieve something. And if you can tie that to a backstory, then that's even better. An example I can give of this. So this was back before the pandemic started. And I was, I think crazy is the right word, crazy enough to deliver a conference presentation in a dual mode. So what that means is with people physically in a room and online at the same time. And I did it using an escape room and I used the escape room to teach people how to use Microsoft Teams. So That sounds really complicated. I realize this and I know I've just said, keep it to a sentence. But the theme of the conference was like the mascot for the conference was a gingerbread man. So I created this escape room that taught people how to use a piece of software. And essentially the gingerbread man was going to be put in an oven unless you could figure out how to get him out of the (laughs) oven. So each of the rooms was, well, is the gingerbread man here? Is this how you rescue him? So it was rescue the gingerbread man. And it it probably sounds really silly and quite like childish, but just having that really simple narrative, I was able to tie it together. What I then did was I looked at what kind of things do people need to know? And I think this is relevant irrespective of what your subject is. So choose a couple of things that you really want people to know and plan your puzzles around them. So for me in this situation, it was Microsoft Teams. So I wanted people to know how to make a call and I wanted people to know how to send a message. So they had challenges that required them to make a call. And 
in completing that challenge, they'd had to make the call, which meant they'd learned how to do it. And that by making the call, they found somebody who gave them the answer, which let them unlock their next room. So I think keeping it as simple as possible, thinking about your narrative and your backstory, think about the kind of tasks that you want people to do and think about the end goal. I think a a really important aspect of this, especially if you're doing it virtually, is having time and space for reflection afterwards. So they tend to be quite fast paced, which is something that Nick's touched on and really exciting and engaging for some people. And if you don't give that space for reflection, it can feel quite flat at the end because you're really excited and you've escaped and then there's kind of nothing else. But what you can find is you can have really rich conversations afterwards and you can discuss things like how people felt during it. So look at the emotional side of it. And I think as a facilitator of some, or as somebody who is helping people to go through escape rooms, and I think this is my absolute favorite thing about them and the reason that I'm so encouraged to do them so often, there's so many surprises that you discover that you don't expect. And I think this is like, this is just the best thing. You've got absolutely no idea how people are going to approach these tasks that you've set. And if you are there facilitating them and you watch them trying to solve problems, you quite often will watch and you'll think, okay, that's not how I planned that problem to be solved. But what that will do is open up a door to how somebody thinks about it differently. And I think that in itself is absolutely fascinating and brilliant. And that is what really encourages me to make these things. It's those surprising discoveries that you don't necessarily plan for and how that then changes the conversation. And I think this sort of leads into discovery learning a little bit as well. But hopefully that gives a bit of an oversight of or an insight into how to get started and what to think about. It's so fun to get inside your mind a little bit as the designer of this experience and to hear about it from that viewpoint. As I consider a lot of times at conferences like this, you're talking about, at least in my experience, pretty formal people, yeah, people who may not just love admitting failure or may not love admitting that they don't already know Microsoft Teams inside and out and could teach it backwards and forward. So to create that more playful thing, but that also tied into the broader conference, because I think sometimes if we put too many layers on things, you know, I, I think about my own, I mean, this is I'm not great at coming up with the backstory, so I'm learning from you sharing about this experience of, oh, but it tied into the broader theme of it. By the way, side note, that's often how we might even be able to, in some cases, get our proposals accepted to be able to present if we're able to show how we are tying into the broader theme of the conference and and have people see that we recognize that in our work. And just to bring in a little bit of playfulness, a bit of informality, but you stressed, Rochelle having that time for reflection so that if there are those who are not excited about the playful aspects, TikTok, I got I got somewhere to be. What it, you know, more wanting just more of let's get down to brass tacks here. Let's get down to to tangible ways I'm gonna take. Those people aren't forgotten. They have an opportunity to reflect a little bit on what they learned, what they experienced, what emerged. And some of that you can plan out, Rochelle, but a lot of it you can't. So you've created a space. 
yeah, in which those surprises, you, you acknowledge them, and then it helps make it that much more authentic what it is that they experience, that much more valuable because you've left the space for it. And you don't leave it just at ginger gingerbread characters. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much. Nick, before we go on to the recommendation segment, is there anything you would like to add about what Rochelle shared uh, as far as guidance or just anything in general about about all of this before we get get to those recommendations? Yeah, I guess it's one 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 point on on the guidance, and, and for me, it's always been a big big thing to think about. What do you do if people get stuck, and how do you support them? And I think when when you start facilitating escape rooms, it's really hard just to be quiet and let people get stuck, mm-hmm. um, because that's the really important thing. That actually, the escape rooms where you get a, a facilitator who gives you the clues too easily stops being fun, and lots of novice facilitators do that. So I think part of it is thinking through how you support people, how you know when people are genuinely stuck and when the stickiness is part of the learning experience. I think for me, that, that's a big one. And it's also how you facilitate without breaking the fourth wall. And I remember doing escape room very early on where if you were stuck, the facilitator would open the door and walk in. And the minute they did that, it did kind of broken the game. So it's thinking particularly online, how do you as a facilitator be part of the game? rather than being something that takes people away from the game. Yeah, and some of that also is setting those rules and norms up front and speaking about them and then sticking to it, like you said. Yeah. <laughs> it is... but, but then once once that's done, you then move into the play space and try not to break that. Because mm-hmm. I think once you, once you do then have to move out of character or get people to move out of the room, you've kind of lost some of what you have. Yeah, and that's us kind of trying to rescue people from failure when, in fact, the whole thing was designed around how important failure can be in the learning process and the struggle and then what they discover about themselves along the way. So, so the other point that I was going to make that kind of picks up on what you were talking about before is around people engaging. And I think there will always be people who don't want to play. I mean, particularly with escape rooms, various colleagues I've spoken to have just said there's no way you would get me in a room with four other people and the door locked. Just no way. Not going to do it. Don't want to play. Don't want to do it. If I need to learn teams. I'll get the manual and I'll do it that way. And I think it's really, it is hard, particularly if you're enthusiastic about play or an advocate about play. You can't understand why people would want to play, but it is also always stepping back and thinking if anyone who's forced to play isn't playing. So we need to make sure that we don't force people to play. Mm. I think that kind of comes into what I mentioned earlier as well about being inclusive. And Nick brought up a really important point before about this not needing to be particularly technological. The majority of the virtual escape rooms I've developed have used softwares like Microsoft OneNote and Google Forms. And there's a great tool called ThingLink, which is another free software. And the idea there is that you've got as much access as you can possibly give. You've got accessibility features built into all of these tools as well. So you're not excluding people from it just because you're using a specific piece of software. But another thing from an inclusive perspective is making sure that, and I think this is probably where you need to be quite clever in the design of your tasks, is making sure that there's something for everybody to engage with or not as they choose. And that is exactly what Nick was saying about people not necessarily wanting to play. Some people are quite happy to sit and watch and see how these situations unfold. Some people don't even want to be there. And that is giving people choice, I think, is really, really important. 
and an important part of play as well. But yeah, for, from an inclusive perspective, just giving lots of different opportunities for engagement in a way that suits many different people. Mm, thank you so much. Before the three of us share our recommendations for today's episode, I want to take just a minute and thank today's sponsor, and that is Text Expander. Text Expander is both the longest running sponsor on teaching in higher ed and also happens to be the very first or among the very first things I install on a new computer because I'm so used to the time that it can save me. It saves me from repetitive typing, little mistakes that I make, and being able to search for answers. And how it does that is by taking what they call a snippet, a few characters, something that I can easily remember to type and expands it into something harder to remember that might be a telephone number or a website or a longer form of text like might take place in our letter of recommendation. And sometimes we get a little bit sensitive about, wait, don't automate, you know, things that, you know, shouldn't be automated. But to me, what it does is in the example of a letter of recommendation, frees up the time, the mental energy of how is this supposed to be formatted and what should I be sure to include in every letter that I write. And then I'm allowed to customize it and free up my time to invest in those things that really ought to be specific to this person who's asking for a letter of recommendation just to give one example. And to give one other quick example before I close this sponsor message, I like to save time by typing website links. So if I type in L-I-N-K, followed by any series of abbreviations, that's what I use to use as my common snippets for websites. So L-I-N-K-T-I-H-E, as in teaching in higher ed, automatically expands to H-T-T-P-S colon forward slash forward slash T-E-I-A. So teaching in higher ed dot com saves me a ton of time. And then again, frees me up to spend time on stuff that is more meaningful and more significant and requiring of customization. So if you head on over to textexpander.com slash podcast, you can try out Text Expander and get 20% off of your subscription. And please let them know that you heard about Text Expander from Teaching in Higher Ed. Thanks so much once again to Text Expander for sponsoring today's episode. Well, this is the time in the show where we each get to share recommendations. And this time I wanted to line up with games and I wanted to recommend a game that seems like it is sweeping around the world. It is a word game and it is called Wordle. And Wordle is a game where you try to guess a five letter word. And there's a lot of talk around what's the best five letter word because it'll tell you did you get one of the letters right, but it's just in the wrong place? Or did you get a letter right and it is in the correct place and then trying to go from there? And you get six tries. And it's a lot of fun and it sort of has a culture behind it in the sense of the guy didn't want to make it into an app. He's not selling advertising on the website, which I'm trying to figure out. He must be getting an awful lot of hits. I don't know how it's He's able to keep that site running and I've never had it be down when I tried to get there, but it's also only offered once per day. So you can't, you know, keep going in and, and, and sort of binge the Wordle games. They are offered once per day. And once that day passes by, the opportunities are gone for that 24 hour period. And I also do want to caution people that I know if you listen to this podcast, you probably care about accessibility and 
just sharing the way that Wordle shares our scores or, or you know, how many tries did it take you? It's going to leave some people out or at the very least really frustrate them because a screen reader would be sharing the emojis, the characters that are made to visually display it. And so there's a website that I'll link people to. There's just one. I've seen some other options, but the one that I use most frequently is a website where you can just paste in your score and then it translates it and it'll say, you know, one correct on the first try and and two this way. And it, and it just it creates more text based opportunities to share your score in a more uh, inclusive way. And then finally, I I get such a kick out of thinking about the ways in which things seemingly not related to teaching actually could be. And John Warner read a wonderful post as part of his Substack, which I recommended in general prior episodes. But I just wanted to share this specific one where he talked about Wordle as pedagogy. And uh, I love that. And he's such a, a brilliant teacher. And so I'm going to encourage you to read John Warner's post where we can find out that we are playing, but we are also uh, could use it in a teaching and learning context and learn from from it in terms of deconstructing it as a game. So those are my recommendations, and I'm going to pass it over, Nick, for yours. Sure. So um, I would like to recommend a website that leads to a game, um, and it's called Cozy Killer. Um, I can email you the exact website. I can't remember it's off my head. And Cozy Killer is a subscription set. So my husband bought me it for my birthday last year. And they offer various different games. But to give an example of the one that brought me, uh, in the first pack, I got sent, there was a, there was a, a notebook with various puzzles and clues and objects. Um, and as you, you get a new box every month, and as you get the box, the story unfolds. It is kind of like an escape room and a story over a series of boxes. And, and for me, I loved that it was so tech-free. It was all done through physical objects. There is a website and you can go in and ask clues and hints. But actually, there was things like, so we got a dollar bill and uh, and a UV light about two months later. And if you put the UV light in the dollar bill, there was a code. And there's just lots of little artifacts. And there's a wonderful puzzle where you actually got, got two coins and there were a load of circles with letters in them. And depending on if you had used the gold coin or the silver coin, one would fit in. And then you could pick the gold or silver letter. Uh, so they were just really inventive, clever puzzles that unfolded. And it, because you have to engage with it for a whole year, again, like Wordle, you can't binge on it because you're only get, you have to wait another month for the next episode. And sometimes the puzzles spread over three or four months. And so I, I think it was, for me, it was a bit of an eye-opener, something that's so cleverly constructed to engage you for so long. Mm, thank you so much. I love that. And Rochelle, how about you? What would you like to recommend? So I've got two recommendations. One is a podcast episode, which my brother actually recommended to me and I listened to it and I was really captivated by it. So it's by The Diary of a CEO with Stephen Bartlett and it's episode 114. And the title is How to Fix Your Focus and Stop Procrastinating. And it's with Johan Hari. And I highly recommend listening to it. It's around an hour and a half and there's some challenging concepts in there, but it, it's really quite enlightening. So yeah, that's the podcast episode. The other thing is a TV show, which I hope is okay. So it's called Magic for Humans and it's on Netflix and it's with a magician called Justin Wilbin. So the way that I'll describe this is that there's magic 
there's comedy, there's lots of hidden lessons and life-affirming moments, and Justin is great with people. So that's my other recommendation. I want to go take in all three of your recommendations right now. <laughs> oh, these sound absolutely lovely. Thank you so much for the playful way and the practical way that, that you brought in these recommendations. And thanks to both of you for being guests on Teaching in Higher Ed. What a delightful conversation it's been. And I'm so looking forward to continuing these conversations together as well. Well, thank you for inviting Rochelle and thank you, for Rochelle, for inviting me. Thank you for having us. Thanks once again to Rochelle O'Brien and Nicola Witten for joining me for today's episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. And thanks to all of you for listening today. If you'd like to head on over to the show notes, they are at teachinginhighered.com slash 402 to get all of the great links that are related to today's episode. And if you'd like to not have to remember to do that, I highly encourage you to head over to teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe. And if you do that, you will be subscribed to the weekly update where those show notes will come directly into your inbox, along with some quotable words and recommendations that don't show up on the episode. So I hope you'll reach out and stay connected with me and with Teaching in Higher Ed that way. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.